Hi, this is Dana. We won't be releasing any new episodes for the next couple of months. We're away producing and reporting our autumn season, which will be out in September. But in the meantime, we want to bring back a few of our favorite episodes from the past. And if you're new to Kerning Cultures, you might not have heard them before. So we hope you enjoy them. This week's episode is called Loving Lynn. It's one of my favorites. I want to tell you a story at the school by the kids. One day they, they had fight, I think, with the kids, and they told my one of my daughter, your mother is Filipina, or Kademe, the word Kademe, how do you say it in... Uh, Kademe, it means maid. And then she didn't, they didn't tell me nothing. They come home, and then I think I shout at Amanda because she did something wrong. And then she said, you are a Filipina, you are a anti-Filipina, anti-Kademe, public. I said, it's the first time, you know, first time I heard from her. I said, why are you telling me like that, Amanda? Yes, because they told me in the school to yesterday, you are a Filipina, you're a Filipina. Lynn's daughter is telling her, you're a Khademe, you're a maid, and I'm a Habbik, I don't love you. Today, we're bringing you a story from Lebanon. It's a story about the challenges of a particular kind of love. An uncommon kind, and to some, unwelcome kind of love. Because Lynn, whom you just heard, is from the Philippines, and Butros, her husband, is from Lebanon. And today, their love story. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Today's story comes to us from producer Dana Balut. We met Lynn and her husband Butros in their home in the Kadisha Valley in northern Lebanon. It's about a two-hour drive out of Beirut, way up in the mountains. By around 10 a.m., we got to the village, the main square where Butros was waiting to guide us to his home. And when we got there, we met Lynn, who was waiting on their front patio when we arrived. <laughs> They'd picked oranges from trees in the valley, which we very quickly ate as we sat down around the table. There was one fruit in particular, actually, that was like a lemon on the outside, but super sweet like an orange on the inside. I won't ever forget how good that tasted. Anyway, pretty quickly, we got into why we were there. To begin with, you should know that the house that we were sitting in was the one Butras had grown up in. And while we were drinking coffee and peeling fruit and having a good time, this wasn't always a happy place. Butrus's childhood was really hard. He told us that the first time his mom put shoes on his feet, he was seven. And at 19, he had never met his father, didn't know what he looked like, what he sounded like, or what a hug from him might have felt like. After his dad left, his mother worked in the olive fields in the Kadisha Valley to support the family. But it was never enough. I'm going to play you about a minute of tape in Arabic here. We'll do this a few times in the story. Even if you don't understand the words, just hold on and I'll translate. But I want you to hear Butrus's voice telling me these stories. 
وامي تروح تشتغل بالزيتون تتعيش آه بعدين كان عندي اخوالي مسافرين بامريكا آه سوري يبعثوا لنا مصريات وقت ما كان في طرقات على ضيعة ايام زمان وقت نشوف هذا الخيال راكب على الحصان وجاي مكتوب يلا لامي فيلك مكتوب من برا بصير نفتح المكتوب شوي 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 تنشوف قديش في مصاري مشان نعيش طفولي كانت صعبه His uncles in the U.S. would send money to their family, and Butrus remembers desperately running to the postman each time he would bring a letter, because the letter meant they might have some money to eat. So in 1975, Butrus was a young teenager, and the war in Lebanon broke out. It's the first time Butrus ever called his estranged dad, who by then, like many Lebanese during that time, had made his way to Venezuela. Butrus told him, Either you let me come and join you over there, or I'm going to have to stay here and fight. His dad agreed to host him. When I went to Venezuela in The first time he got to know his dad was when he got to Venezuela in 1976. And when he arrived, his dad asked for his forgiveness. Did you forgive him? I asked. Yes, I forgave him. But life in Venezuela wasn't the better life he'd anticipated. His dad lived in a remote village and didn't have a job. We just didn't succeed, he told me. So for many years, he moved around a lot, working different jobs in Canada, then Australia. Eventually, he found himself back in Lebanon, in his small village of Sidal, in the house he grew up in. Not much had changed, except there were a couple new faces in town. You know, the family where I work was his uncle, his mother's brother. And he comes there every day to visit his uncle, you know. When he comes, I make coffee for him. We sit together, we talk together. We sit with his uh, cousins and we we talk stuff, you know, sometimes nonsense stuff, sometimes anything. (laughs) This is Lynn, who you heard earlier. Lynn, who is from the Philippines, worked for Busres' uncle as a housekeeper who she says was a good employer after she'd had a long string of bad ones. Lynn also grew up poor and in a small village in the Philippines. It's like here, it's a village. Uh, My parents uh, plant rice, but then when typhoon comes, the rice will go all uh, by the water, by the typhoon. It's hard, it's very hard in the Philippines also. But I don't like our village when I grew up about in my teenager. I said, this village is, uh, there's no future in here. It's like a died village, you know, there's nothing in there. She went to school in her village, then studied for an engineering degree in a nearby city. But her dad got sick before she finished, and she had to find a job to support herself with. So when an agent from a domestic workers agency came to visit her village to offer people jobs in Dubai or Lebanon, she accepted because I want to finish my studies and my parents can't support me no more. So I, I said I have to go earn some money and then come back to Philippines and finish my studies. But uh... She moved to Lebanon. At one of her earlier jobs, she was taking care of three kids who she says would regularly shout at her and beat her. This was in Beirut. 
She later found her way to a new home, in northern Lebanon, in the town of Sir'al, where Butris is from. There, she said, things were different. She felt like she was a part of a family, rather than just an employee. And then she met Butros in Sir'al, and Butros would spend afternoons at his uncle's house where she worked. He comes every day, visit, ask about me, how are you? And sometimes they say, oh, you're, you're dressing good, Lynn, or like that, you, you look so beautiful today, something like that, and said, oh, thank you. <laughs> After about six months, they started to notice something between them. Just a spark, something in the way that they laughed at each other's jokes or caught glimpses of the other staring their way or the way their hearts beat a little bit faster before they saw each other. It never come to my mind that one day, you know, I, I will like him, I will love him. No, it was just, uh, you know, I'm working with them and his uncle. They started a routine. They'd wait until the rest of the village had gone to sleep around 10 or 11 p.m. and sneak out of their houses to meet up. They wouldn't do anything special. They couldn't. This had to be a secret. Mostly, they'd sit on the front step of one of their houses and talk. Sometimes, they'd drive 10 minutes out of the village to a secret spot that overlooked the Katisha Valley. You can't see it from the road. That's where they had their first kiss. Do you remember the first time you told her you loved her? It was late, 10 or 11 p.m., outside Butrus's uncle's house. And they couldn't go inside because everybody was sleeping. So they sat on the stairs at the entrance and he told her, Listen, I came to see you. I can't sleep without seeing you. I love you. And she said, I love you too. Yeah, I remember we, we sat in the stairs by the building in there. He said, he told me, I can't sleep, I have to come and see you. I said, me too, I can't sleep, I was in my bed, I was thinking of you. <laughs> and then we sat there, we talked, and then uh, he told me, I lo- he loves me. I said, me too, I love you, I can't uh, live without, uh, without seeing you no more. So here I want to pause for a moment and say something. In Lebanon, or anywhere really in the Arab world, we have a serious racism problem. There's racism towards Arabs, against people who are African, Asian, and racism towards domestic workers, institutional and social racism. In Lebanon, our labor laws that dictate the rights of foreign domestic workers allow for employees largely from the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Ethiopia, and Bangladesh to have close to no rights compared to other foreign workers. Employers take their passports, control their phones, make them work excessive hours without breaks, A lot of these workers, oftentimes women, are sometimes abused emotionally, physically, and sexually. A great resource to learn more about this is human rights watcher Lebanon Skafa. So in this context, romantic relationships between Lebanese and domestic workers are uncommon and very often looked down upon. He was hesitant. One day he wanted to marry her, and the next he'd say to himself, no, he couldn't. Society was too restrictive. Yeah, I said, maybe he's, uh, he's lying. He's, uh, you know, he's lying to me. He doesn't want me. Or he's just telling me he want to marry me. I said, no, I won't. I won't believe him like that. But then my heart would say, no, he's, uh, he loves you. He, he really wants you. He said, 
Go ahead, Lin, you have to trust him. From your family's side... This is producer um, Alex Atak. I mean, how, how did your family feel about you deciding to kind of stay in Lebanon? Well, the first thing they ask me, how old is he? I tell the he's 52, 51, 52. But he's too big for you. He's too old, you know, big for you. 23 years. I said, no, that's okay, but he's nice. He's, uh, he's very good to me. I said, is he rich? The first time they ask me, is he rich? Because we know when there's a age gap that the big, of course, maybe he's rich. That's why he's, she's marrying him. I said, no, she, he's not rich. He's, um, but I love him and he loves me and we were, we're going to get married. This episode is sponsored by Tap Payments. If you have a website or an application or sell products online and you need a payment gateway to send and accept payments to your customers, GoSell from Tap Payments provides you with an easy, fast, and secure payment gateway. Tap features include activating and linking your site with a click of a button. It supports all of Saudi Arabia and Gulf banks. It supports all the preferred payment methods for your customers in Saudi Arabia and abroad. TAP is licensed by the Gulf Central Banks and serves more than 70,000 merchants in the Gulf and the region. Find out about GoSell through the link provided in the show notes. Back in Lebanon, Boutrous was finding it difficult to get over what everybody else might think. At one point, he thought about moving back to Venezuela with Lynn so that they could get married without having to care about everyone else's reactions. إلى أن أنا عندي صديق رحت خبرته صديق كتير لألي أنا عمله شغل كهرباء ببيته قلت له جا أنا بدي أتزوج بنت فلبينية تشتري عن خالي وأنا بدي أروح على فنزويلا وهي بنت الحقني تتجوز هناك لأنه أنا فزعان أتجوزها بسرعة لأنه محيط ضيق والعالم بدها تحاربني محيط ضيق العالم بدها تحكي علينا بيوم صديق بيقلي أنت جميل he went to a friend for advice. This was somebody he trusted, one of the few people who knew about Lynn. And when he brought up the Venezuela idea, his friend said, Are you crazy? If you run from this, you'll be running your entire life. Grow up, tell your relatives, and marry her at a church in Siral. So he proposed, and she said yes. A few days later, Lynn tried to bring it up with Patrice's uncle, who she still worked for. And then I start telling him, I think uh, I want to get married here in Lebanon. I said, really? Who? Somebody here in the village. Who is that? Can you tell me who is that? I said, uh, your nephew. My nephew? <laughs> I said, yeah. Why are you talking? You you love him? I said, yeah. No, 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 no. You have to go back to your country. You have to go back to your mom. He said, no, we're planning to get married and it's all done. I said, no, you can't. You have to go back to your mother. And then I said, oh my God, it's I'm in trouble now. I can't, I can't uh, get married with him. I said, uh, you know what? You have to finish your, uh, your uh, contract uh, with me and then go back to your mom. Forget about Botros. Finish your work here and then you go back to your mother. That's all I want. Forget him. 
Some of Butchers' friends tried to change his mind. They said, why don't you marry a girl from your own neighborhood, from your own country? There are plenty of them. But he told them, listen, I'm not ashamed of my wife. I see her as the most beautiful woman. They wanted to get married in secret because they were scared of Butrus's mom's reaction, and their fears were justified. When they told her, she grabbed Lynn by the hair and beat her, saying, why does my son want to marry a Filipina girl who works for us? They both cringe and kind of go silent when they talk about this moment. It's clearly not one they want to remember. But by then, they had made their decision and weren't going back on it. They got married on a Monday in the church in Seral, right in the middle of the village. You can see it from their front door. They didn't have any money to fly Lynn's family out, so invites went out mostly to Butrus's family and friends. In total, they invited 40 people. Only one showed up. Butrus's friend from earlier in the story. As Butrus put it, nobody else had the guts to show up. In their wedding album, which they showed us, there are these pictures of the three of them standing in an empty church. The priest had to take the photos because nobody else was there to do it. After the wedding, the two of them couldn't afford to move into a place of their own. So Lynn moved into Butrus's mother's house where he was living and where he had grown up. When we got married and I have to move in their house, he told me we have to, you, we have to live with my mom. You, have, uh, you can't do nothing. You have to deal with her. He said, okay, there's no choice. I have to live with him, uh, with his mother. The, the first day it was so hard. He, she keeps staring at me, following at me wherever I go what I want to do, if I eat something or I want to do something in the house. She keeps following me, staring at me, and she murmurs words like that by herself. She starts telling her son, uh, her son, you have to keep her things by herself and you have to keep your things by your own. Don't use her things and don't let her use your things. It was a difficult start to the marriage. As well as the problems at home with Butrus's mom, they had to deal with strangers staring at them in restaurants. People came up to Butrus and asked, what is wrong with you? People from the village tried to convince Lynn that Butrus was lying to her, that he didn't really want to be with her. This was their life for a few years. But then Lynn got pregnant and suddenly things changed quickly, at least at home with Butrus's mom. When I got pregnant to Amira, she was happy, said, oh my God, that's good. And that's the time she starts uh, nice to me. She starts caring, asking me stuff like... What do you want to eat today, Lynn? What do you want? Uh, you want to do something today? But before, no, never. She won't ask me what I want to eat, what I want to do. Maybe because I'm giving a uh, grandchild for her. <laughs> Amira was their first child. They named her after Butrus's grandmother. She is so adorable and so smart, by the way. She showed us all her copybooks, and she has the most beautiful handwriting I've ever seen. Anyway, later on, they had another daughter, Amanda, and a son. They named him Antonio, after Butrus's dad. But their kids look different than everyone else in their class. 
They look like they could be from somewhere else. So Butras and Lynn still worry about them. I don't know how society will treat my daughters when they grow up and get closer to marriage. Maybe nobody will ask to marry my daughters. It's really hard to imagine that. But we don't raise our children to feel that they're different. There is racism here, but it's not everywhere. There are good people in Lebanon too, he says. Today, their biggest challenge is figuring out how to raise mixed-race children in a society that still doesn't totally accept them. Is there any part of the Philippines that you give to your children? It's a bit hard to hear. I asked if Lynn feels that there is any part of the Philippines that she wants her children to hold on to, because it's where their mother comes from. No, no. Why? Because I said that they don't need it. We're here in the village, we're here in the country, they, they will go to the school here. I said they don't need it. Amira, when she was small, I used to talk to her in Tagalog. But then my mother-in-law said, no, she doesn't need that language for what? And don't talk to her like that, don't like this, like that. It's nonsense, she doesn't need it. Oh. I stop it. I start talking with her in Arabic and English. None of the kids spent any significant time in the Philippines. They don't have the privilege to raise them as bicultural kids. And they still have problems. Sometimes at restaurants, the waiter will ask everybody for their order except Lynn, who they likely think is the maid and therefore unworthy of being spoken to. When we're sitting in the table, we want to eat something. My kids will tell me, Mommy, look at those people. They're looking at us and they're talking. I don't want to tell her because you're half Filipino or... They said, because you're beautiful, that's why they're looking at you. Lynn had wanted to leave the Philippines as a young girl. She knew her future was elsewhere. And despite their love story facing challenges, isolation from a larger community, side comments from strangers, Lynn says her family is the most important thing to her. I, I forget everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, All for me is my kids and family. Anna, I feel guilty. The guilt that he feels is that Lynn came to Lebanon at 23 years old. So she had had a life before. She had a family. She had loved ones. And he's not able to give her that kind of life back. And now that they have three kids, he tells her that they have to sacrifice together. And that he's sorry that he deprived her of this kind of life. But I'm not asking, I'm not asking him anything. <laughs> and I'm satisfied and I'm, I'm happy here. No, I know. I know. I know. But what I feel. Yeah, I know. I I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I Hello. I want to see you smiling, then I'll go. I said, okay, I, I, I'm okay now, go ahead. <laughs> when I see her smiling, life is better. In general, I don't want to see anyone angry or upset, especially the mother of my children. I was deprived of several things until I was 19. I faced a lot of troubles. So everything I've learned in this life, I'd like to pass on to my kids. This episode was produced by myself, Dana Balut, along with Natalie Rosa Bucha, 
and Alex Atak, with editorial supports from Hiba Fisher, sound design by Mohamed Khreizat, and of course, the amazing Bella Brahim is our marketing manager. 